Uh, if you've got a Bible, open up to uh, Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 is where we're going to be today. Um, if you're a guest with us, we're so glad that you're here. If you're new or visiting or back for the first time in a while, it's an honor uh, to share Sunday with you. My name is Chad Kinser, and I get to serve as our lead pastor here at Frontline Downtown. And uh, sharing the Word of God is always a privilege and honor to do. We're going to be in Philippians 1 today. Uh, Josh mentioned last week that we're going to be in Revelation, uh, starting out a series coming out of our Sacred Life series. That's true, but that's st- starting next week. Today is kind of a little uh, break between series, and I wanted to talk about something I think is really helpful in the life of our church at this point of the year. So uh, where we are, September, uh, kind of let you know what we're talking about today. Um, lots of people have been visiting our church over the last few weeks. It's been a lot of fun to get to meet new people, to see new faces. Um, and if you've been one of those that have come and joined us the last few weeks, we're so glad that you're here. It's an honor to share Sundays with you. And uh, September is always kind of a time of the year where people are giving church a, a shot for the first time, the first time again in a long time, or uh, they've just moved here. And so starting a school year, they're going to check out a couple of churches. And so, um, again, if that's you, it's been an honor to, to, to walk with you. But we've had so much we've talked about the last few weeks in this series we've done called Sacred Life, where we just talked about how God meets you in different stages of life, stages of discipleship, and he forms you, and nothing is lost in Jesus, regardless of what age or phase of discipleship that you're in. And one of the things we've talked about the last few weeks is the way we work that out is not just hearing and receiving that on Sundays and getting new understanding, but it's working that out in the six days between Sunday in community groups. And we have people who are sharing life and faith together in community groups scattered all throughout our city, all throughout the week. And we've talked about how community is the way to to kind of process and work out the truth that's being worked in on Sundays. And so if you're here and you've been kicking around Frontline as a place to kind of uh, figure out if you're going to land here. I want to tell you what our church is about kind of in the between Sundays when we talk about community groups. So if Sunday is your only experience of Frontline, you're getting a significant experience of Frontline, um, but, but it honestly falls short as to really what this church is all about and where ministry in this church plays out. Sundays for us are like a pep rally, right? We gather, we sing our songs, we sit under the word of our king, we pray, and we kind of uh, anchor again into what it is to be a, a son of God, daughter, I, I found in Jesus, and what we want to do between Sundays is go out into our city and live that out in our businesses, in our neighborhoods, in our places of leisure and life. And we also want to gather together with other believers and community groups to share life and faith and talk about mission and confess sin and receive encouragement and get help and all these sorts of things. That's where so much of our ministry is experienced. So much of our ministry is, is, is felt in our city is between Sundays. This just resources us to go live real life between, between the hour on Sunday when we, when we gather each week, right? So community groups are a big deal. And so today I want, through scriptures, I want to talk to you a little bit about from the Bible, uh, why we believe in this so much, why we want to push this so much, and where, where this is relevant for what God is calling you to in your life, uh, kind of wherever you are. So if you're familiar with this, uh, jump aboard and let's be a refresher. If this is brand new to you, um, I, I hope it'll be helpful, and, and I think God will, will bless it. So uh, Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30 is where we're going to look. The words will be on the screen behind me if you don't have a Bible. Um, But I want to read this passage, and then I'll pray, and then we'll jump in from there. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, the voice of Jesus our King speaks to us like this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. It has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, 
that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is the word of God to us. Let's pray. God, I pray you'd help us now. Um, I pray you'd gather up the anxieties we walked into this room with. I pray you'd gather up the fears, the depression. Um, I pray you'd gather up anything that would have our minds distracted and our hearts frazzled. I pray you'd gather us up. I pray you'd slow us down. And I pray you'd sit us underneath your voice, King Jesus. Um, I pray you'd speak to us. I pray you'd shape us. And I pray you'd help us understand what you would have for us and uh, the kingdom righteousness and the kingdom life you've purchased for us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. And together we said, amen. Well, you and I live in a moment in culture, and it's not just our moment. It really is all moments, but it's, I think, felt particularly relevant in this cultural moment where everyone has this common thing about all of us where we want to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. Like everyone feels that inside of them. You want to be a part of something that's bigger than you, that's shaping your life forward. You know that you're living for something, your life has meaning, it's going towards something, and you're not the only one going toward it. There's other people going toward it, and, and you know that, man, I'm giving my life towards something. It's bigger than me. It goes outside of me. It involves lots of people, and it's making a difference in the world. We have a, a desire for this. We have a a hankering for this. We have an ache in our souls for this. And you see it play out in all kinds of really simple, everyday kinds of things. So one of the things this time of year, for example, is sporting events, right? Sporting events are a great example of this desire inside of all of us. So what will happen is we'll gather together in stadiums and sit by complete strangers, and we'll throw on the color of our favorite team, and we'll all be sitting there in this one color. And then when our team does something we want them to do and they cross that goal line, right, uh, we'll start cheering, we'll start freaking out, we'll start high-fiving strangers, right? And we'll start hugging strangers and we'll hug them. And or it's like, what are we doing? I don't know you, but this is awesome. And we high-five again. And then we clank our glasses together and we feel like we're a part of something. We're all doing this. And we know that we're doing this as a part of something bigger than ourselves because we use certain language and this kind of stuff happens. You know what I'm talking about. If you've heard someone who loves a sports team talk, you'll hear them say, we've got a big game today. Uh, we've, we've got a big game today. We've got a big challenge in front of us. This is going to be a big test for our season. No, you don't have a game today. The team has a game today. You're sitting there in your soft pants with your favorite buffet at your house, eating what you want to eat and clanking your glass together with your friends. You're not doing anything, right? You're wearing a shirt and you're sitting in your chair or you're at the stadium and you're wearing a color. It might be the same color as the team on the field, but you do not have a game, and you are not scoring, and you are not doing anything, right? Um, but we want to feel like we're a part of something bigger than ourselves, so we use we language. We won today. They won today. You get to benefit from that, right? I guess. Uh, you, you see it at sporting events. You see it Things like concerts, right? It's very similar where we're going to gather together and we're going to sit by complete strangers and we're going to do these things. And at some point, the music's going to take over and you're going to find yourself either actually or in your head playing an air guitar you know, lick on your, with your body. And you're going to look over and the, the guy sitting next to you is playing the same thing. And you're going to like feel like we're, we're friends in this. The music is taking us over. We're a part of this music. And you're going to high five and you're going to talk to the stranger sitting next to you at the music as though you've known each other forever because somehow the music makes you feel like you're a part of something bigger than yourself. Politics, another example of this, right? Especially in campaign seasons, you will partner together with people and you will high five people and you will find yourself in solidarity with people that you otherwise wouldn't like and wouldn't talk to, but because they share your same ideals in a political season, now we're together in this. We talk about it with we language and Democrats 
and Republicans and libertarians, we're all going to share our ideologies across the room, and we feel like we're a part of something, right? It's a movement. It's, it's an ideology we want to push forward in the world. You see this in activism, getting behind a cause. You want your life to count. You see it especially on social media, right? On social media, you can post a picture, you can share a story, you can make a comment, you can throw something out there, and people are going to comment back on it. It could be personal, it could be something social, it's out there, and all of a sudden, you find other people who are hashtagging, we're a part of something bigger than ourselves, right? So I've given all kinds of examples. You know exactly what I'm talking about. All of us have this desire to be a part of something bigger than ourselves, and we live in a current cultural moment where we are more connected than we've ever been. And this is not new. You know this. This is not unique. You've heard this before. You know this by your experience. We're more connected than we've ever been as a society. And at the same time, we are wrecked out with loneliness, right? So we hop from experience to experience to experience, from concert to football game to, to watch party to political movements. We, we hop from cause to other kind. We hop on social media. We're more connected than we've ever been at the same time. I have conversations with people all the time, and I feel this in my own soul, where you're wrecked out with this feeling that no one really knows me. No one really knows me. Like, I'm doing all this stuff, I'm busy, I'm in the crowd all the time, but I'm wrecked out by the fact that I don't know that I'm actually really known. And so we'll post things, and we'll throw out pictures of ourselves, and we'll have this ideal self that we present to the world, right? So it's the, the version of ourself that we want to be, or that we like to think of ourselves as, or that we want others to see us as. We'll post pictures of this, or we'll talk in this voice, and people will comment back on it, and they'll see pictures of our family, our meals, uh, our jobs, our lives, and they post back on it, and it feels good. But at the end of the day, you're like, I don't know that that's actually me. You know that when you're honest with yourself, and you're going, I don't know that I'm actually really known. I read an article recently from the Boston Globe. It was posted March of last year, so March 2017. And the article is really interesting. It talked about men, but I think it's, it's larger than just men. I think it's, it's culture-wide across the genders. And it talked about the greatest health risk, the greatest health risk to people in their 30s and 40s, middle age. The greatest health risk is not obesity in our country. It's not drinking or smoking. The greatest health risk is loneliness. Loneliness. People living their lives, packing their lives full of the life they wanted to build with their family or even their singleness and their career or however it would be. They've built this whole life together and now it takes up so much time to maintain. And yeah, you're around people and you have water cooler conversations, but it's just getting through the day, hitting rinse and repeat and doing it all over again. And though you're in the fray and you're around all kinds of people, do you have any real relationships? And the article talked about how there's a high percentage of men who, in this, according to this survey, answer the question, if life were to have the bottom fall out and it's the middle of the night, who would you call? The answer was, I don't know. I don't know. And I don't think that is just for people out there. I think that this resonates with, with us in this room. And so what ends up happening to cover over this connectedness that we're a part of but we don't really have and feel, what we'll do is we'll just keep doing more of the things that we've always done to busy ourselves and to numb our pains and numb our fears and to numb our loneliness. We'll keep hopping from bar to bar and we'll do club hopping on Friday night and then we'll do party hopping on Saturday with experiences and games and watch parties and then we'll do church on Sunday and we'll busy our lives through the week and we'll do our taekwondo class or we'll do our yoga club or we'll do our things. But then at the end of the day, it's so busy. I'm just trying to numb myself from the pain 
pain of being in the crowd but not really being known, not really being known. And so it's true, right? There is a desire in all of us. I don't think I'm talking a different language. I think this is plain English, right? It's true. All of us have this desire to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. But here's the problem. We're not going to find the answer to that ache by doing more of the same things we've always been doing, right? It's like this, this circle of stupidity. Like maybe it's more of the same things I've been doing. I just need more of it to get the output that I really want when it's actually more of it that makes it go more and more into numbness, into deafness, into muteness. Maybe it's actually something different, right? We are made for something bigger ourselves, but we're going to need to find something more stable than ourselves to find it. More stable than ourselves. So what we typically do to, 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 to cure the ache is we look more to ourselves and more people like us to meet the ache, but we actually need to look something more stable than ourselves. The kind of relationships that we're looking for, deep relationships, rich relationships, messy relationships. Messy relationships are actually good relationships because it means you're, you're connected enough to experience the mess. Deep, rich, messy, complex relationships, the relationships that we really want can only be found when they're rooted in the gospel of Jesus and when they're bent towards sharing in the kingdom of God. And this is exactly what's happening in our passage today, Philippians chapter one. This passage is all about how God is calling us toward a certain life to live, and then he's gonna help us connect the dot with the encouragement we need to actually live that life. He's calling us toward a life And then he's gonna help us connect the dot with the encouragement we need to actually live that life. It's a one-point sermon today. How do we live out the life God is calling us to? So look back at verse 27. It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so Paul comes out of the gates here in this passage with this command, let your manner of life, let the way that you live be worthy of the gospel of Jesus. Big line, big statement, big declaration. Big idea. Let your whole life be worthy of the Son of God coming, shedding his blood for your sins, emptying his own grave to give you proof that sins are really forgiven, now resurrected as the King of of the world at the right hand of God. Let your life be worthy of that. Massive, massive statement, right? But I love the way that Paul says it. He says it like it's so matter of fact. He says it just really plainly in the flow of the passage. Hey, let your life be worthy of this, as if to say, what else could you possibly live for? Like, what else could you possibly do with your life that's worth your time? What else would be worth your time, your ambition? What else would be worth your resources and your energy? What else would be worth your life? But what else would be worth it, right? Is money worth it? Is sex worth it? Is adulation worth it? Is it career and advancement and success? Is that worth it? Let your life be lived in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus. None of those things ultimately define you because they can be taken away from you. The only thing that can really be lived in a manner worthy of is something that can never be changed and never be taken away. All the rest of these things can change and be removed. Only the gospel of Jesus remains. And so he says, live your life in a manner worthy of this. There's literally nothing else that directs our life, defines our life, or makes sense of life apart from the wonder of God's kingdom coming to sinners like you and me. Nothing else makes sense of it. Nothing else even comes close to giving meaning to marriage, giving meaning to suffering, giving meaning to death, giving meaning to singleness, giving meaning to your work, giving meaning to any area of your life. Nothing else gives meaning to those things like Jesus, his gospel, because his resurrection has everything to do with everything. (laughs) Right? 
He's the one who gives meaning. So this passage comes forward and commands us, let your life be shaped by the worthiness of Jesus. But there's something else I want us to see here to help us live in the power of this command. Look at the phrase, let your manner of life. In the Greek, that's actually one word. So Paul would have written this in, the, in, in Greek language. It, it, it was one word in the Greek. This phrase, let your manner of life, is one word. It's the word polituomai. And it means live as a good citizen. It means live as a good citizen. So what Paul is talking about is he's not live up to citizenship. What he's saying is you are a citizen. This is an identity statement. He's saying live as a good citizen of the kingdom of heaven, of the gospel of Jesus. Live like this. You don't have to achieve this or work for this. Live like this. And so this is huge for us. Because what Paul is saying is that the mercy of God is not something you have to go earn. The mercy of God, the love of God that you want, the approval of God is not something you have to go get. The righteousness of Jesus isn't something you have to live up to. It's not something you have to keep up with. Your past isn't something you have to make up for. It's not something you have to cover over. It's not something you have to excuse or get rid of. Those things aren't even possible. Your past is your past. But the wonder of the kingdom of Jesus is not that you have been so busy seeking God. The wonder of the kingdom of Jesus is that God has been so so busy seeking you, right? The wonder of the kingdom of Jesus isn't that you were looking for a father to adopt you and to give meaning to your life, but that you had a father in God who sent his son Jesus on a mission to shed his blood and to empty his tomb in order that you might be adopted as his own. The wonder of the kingdom isn't that you have been busy so much of your life trying to change. Any desire you have to change has come into you by common grace where Jesus is saying, hey, let's get out of here. I wanna change you and I wanna keep changing you as you trust me. It's not that you have to live a certain life to make God your own. It's that he's already made you his own. He's called you a citizen of his kingdom, a rightful citizen. So this is really good news. So this passage comes forward to the command right out of the gates. And it says, live your life as a good citizen of the gospel of Jesus and his kingdom. Now, I throw that forward. We're talking about community. How in the world do these things connect? Well, the how question, right? So how do I do that? Like, how do I step in line with that? How does my life come around that? How do I order my life to live in a manner worthy of this? That's a big deal. That's beautiful. I'm a citizen. How do I do it? Can you give me a guide to citizenship? What comes next in the passage, Paul answers the how question, but I want to set it up before we look at it. Because what he says is not anything that you and I would imagine he would say. So if we were to sit over coffee and if you've been around me a length of time, I'm a coffee snob. And so uh, I prefer a good kind of coffee, not like the Starbucks burned stuff. And some of you are like, I'm a Starbucks barista. Stop burning your coffee, right? Um, I like good coffee. And so if we were to sit over coffee my way, and, uh, and I would just ask you a question. How would someone's life look if they lived in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus? Like, what, what would someone's life look like? I've asked this question before, and here's some of the answers I get. Someone who lives in a manner worthy of the gospel, they would probably read their Bible a lot. They'd probably read their Bible a lot. They'd probably pray a lot. And then I get this kind of follow-up. They, they certainly wouldn't do these things, and then they go down a list of things that a Christian or someone who's living worthy of the gospel wouldn't do. It's easy to identify what it is by what it's not, right? And then I would get a follow-up list of like, and here's the things that that person would do. And it's moral 
religious behavioral list of codes and, and actions. So they would pray a lot, read their Bible a lot. They would do certain things, not do certain things. I hear the answer sometimes that they would be a, an activist and they would be help, helping uh, the poor and the marginalized in their city, which is an awesome answer. They would say things like, um, you know, a person who is living worthy of the gospel would probably share their faith a lot. They would be an evangelist, people around them. And all that's true, right? All that's really good answers. And that's all we would most of the time think about. That's what I often think about when I think about that question. But none of that is what Paul says in the verses that follow verse 27. None of that's what he says. The first dot that he connects is nothing that we would often think of. Look what he says in 27. He says, let your manner, let your, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are, here's how he says to do it. I wanna hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So notice the first dot that Paul connects between living a life worthy of the gospel and then actually carrying it out is to live in unity and harmony with other believers. Like that's the first dot he connects to live a life that magnifies the beauty of the Son of God coming to pay for your sins. How do I do it? Live in harmony and in unity and purposeful life with other believers, knitted together. That's the first dot he connects. And the reason I find this answer so fascinating, and the reason that probably many of us wouldn't answer yet, uh, this, this way to this question, it's not because we don't think that community is a valuable thing. You do. All of us do. You know that you shouldn't be a hermit. You know that you shouldn't just stow away somewhere and have all your theology in order but not interact with the world. You know that. It's not that you wouldn't say community is not a big deal, but the reason that we often don't answer this way, like the Bible tells us to, is because we often don't see community with other believers as mission critical. So it's a good thing so long as you have time for it. It's a good thing to have and to do so long as it fits conveniently in your programmed life. It's a, it's a good thing to have and to do and to get after so long as it makes sense with your current priorities and you can fit it in somewhere. If it can't, well, I can still live for the glory of God well on my own and have my own faith, right? It's not that we don't think this isn't valuable. We do. It's just not mission critical. Other things seem to stack up and be more urgent. And so here's what I often hear. I don't, I don't need the church and the community, right? I have my own faith, and I do me and God. I show up on Sundays, I get my shot in the arm full of faith, and then I go out and I do it on my own. And this is exactly why we talk about community groups so much, right? Because the New Testament doesn't even acknowledge that kind of Christianity. The kind of Christianity that would say, I just have me and God and I do my own thing, right? The, the New Testament is like, to, that's a totally foreign idea to the Bible, like, whatever that is, that's not discipleship to Jesus. Whatever that is. Discipleship to Jesus is, I'm sitting under you as my king, and I'm now with your people being ordered accordingly at your command. That's discipleship to Jesus. Love for Jesus necessarily binds you to his blood-bought people. It necessarily does. And, and so the New Testament's totally foreign to that idea. It, it binds us together. What the Bible is saying is the first order of business in living as a good citizen of the kingdom of heaven is in heartfelt community with other believers. And so here, here's just one sort of 
um, homework I want to show you on, on this whole deal. In case you think that, okay, that's a cute thing that Paul would say to the Philippian church. Maybe they had problems with isolation. This is actually the whole message of the New Testament. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. I therefore, Paul's saying this, a prisoner of the Lord, almost the same language, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. How do I do it? How do I live worthy? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So he says, how do you, you do it through unity and knittedness to other believers? In John 17, this is the final prayer Jesus prays before going to the cross. Like this is, this is what's on his mind. These are his best thoughts before he breathes his last and he prays this. Father, I do not ask for these only, talking about the 12, but I ask for those who will believe in me through their word, he's talking about us, he's talking about those who would believe beyond the ministry of the apostles. Here's what he asks, 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they would also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So the thing that Jesus is like dripping with passion to pray for before he goes to the cross is that you and I would live in heartfelt community with one another sharing life, faith, and mission. Like those are his best thoughts before death. Those are his most urgent prayers, not for himself. God, for those who would believe in 2018 at Frontline Church in the heart of downtown Oklahoma City, let them not just do Sundays. Like let them do life together. Like let them, that's, that's his prayer. And so it's this kind of community and heartfelt unity. It's the tenor of the entire New Testament. And so if you step back for a second, and you go, why is God so concerned about this? I'll tell you why. Step back for a second and just, just observe Facebook for five seconds, right? Like God is countercultural. He's calling us together on Facebook. Here's what it is. It's either someone posting about how awesome they are, or on the other side, it's them posting about how they hate something in the world or a person or an ideology. It's a massive complaint, so it's either, hey, look, I'm awesome. Everyone else is terrible. This world sucks. Post on my thing, right? And then we read the same stuff and we go, yeah, post on your thing. And then it's like, we're just posting about awesomeness and terribleness. It's pendulum swinging, right? And yet, even the way we, this is the air we breathe and the way we joke with one another, right? Some of the joking we have is like criticism kind of joking. I, I talk to you that way because I love you, right? It's like, that's the way we even share friendship together. But Jesus is calling us to live, to live together, like to love one another, to understand the song we sing. We're sons, we're daughters. He's our king, Christ our brother, God our father. We're family, we're family. And so he's calling us toward this. And so I know some of you would say, okay, community groups sounds awesome, but my work schedule won't allow me to do that. Like I'm so busy, uh, I can't get, to a community group during the week is my work schedule. And if that's you, I totally understand that. Like that's a legit thing to say. But on the other side of that, here's what I'd wanna say. There is no community group in our church that is so closed off that there can't be some sort of adjustment to find a time that would meet your schedule brothers and sisters could get together and pray and encourage. Like there's no community group like that. And if you find one, let the elders know and we will reorder that community group immediately, right? We're committed to this. And I'm not throwing out community groups today or your need for this like, like the silver bullet to your life, right? I'm not throwing it out like that. 
it's not like if you just get in a community group, then all your, all your wonders and pleasures in Jesus will magically unlock. That's not what's happening. Because we're messy, we're sinful, and some of you are like, I've been in a frontline community group and it was terrible, right? I'm saying, get in a community group. We are messy people. We are hypocritical people. We're learning to repent of all of that and follow Jesus better. But here's what I am saying. To leave off community is to go on as a lone ranger in the Christian life and it's to leave off a major weapon God has given to us. Leave off a major weapon. Like sometimes people will come to me and they go, I don't feel connected to God. I don't feel far from God. I don't feel really connected to what's going on. And I'm like, well, are you in a community group? Well, no. And it's like, oh man, pick up the machete. Like I'm not saying that all your life is gonna unlock, but I am saying at least go in with the full arsenal. Like at least go in with all the weapons God has given to us. But he's gonna keep going down and, and I got two more verses and we'll be done today. Look at verse 28. So the idea, live in a manner worthy of the gospel and you do so striving side by side, standing firm in one spirit, one mind, you need community. Look at 28. He says, and don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. I love this. Don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a sign to them of their destruction and of your salvation and that from God. Here's what's beautiful about this. If you and when you step out to live honest in discipleship to Jesus, you will be opposed. You will be opposed. Some of you feel this in your workplaces, in your neighborhoods. You've stepped out in honest discipleship and you've been rejected and you've been opposed. Jesus told us this would happen, right? Now, some of you, you're opposed because you've been a Christian jerk about your faith, right? Like you've been judgmental and condemning toward people and you ought to be opposed. Like Jesus does not affirm that. But for those of you who have been loving, quiet, genuine, gentle, humble, and you're opposed, this passage comes forward and it says, don't be frightened in any of that. And that's good news because what, once, what ends up happening in us is we wanna get frightened. We wanna close off, we wanna have a defense mechanism that says, okay, I won't live that way any longer, I'll just blend in. This passage says, no, 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 no. When you're opposed, don't be scared because it's a sign that you're doing it right. Like you're doing it right. Like they recognize Christ in you. They oppose Jesus. They will certainly oppose you. And it's a sign of your salvation, that from God. And it's a sign that his kingdom is moving forward. Now, you step out and you do that. Your tongue is gonna be dragging by Thursday. You're gonna feel the weight. You're gonna feel the heaviness of the Christian life. You're gonna start having self-talk on the inside and wondering, should I keep going? Is Jesus really worth it? It felt like it was worth it in that moment. You walk away from that moment of rejection and opposition and you're, now you're like in this conflict inside. You show up to community group on Thursday and you're like, I'm not even sure if I'm in on this. I'm not even sure why I'm here. The food they're serving is bad. Why is there cat smell? All this kind of stuff at community group. But then the conversation opens and you, you share about this moment that happened on Tuesday. And now they all of a sudden, your community comes around you. They get you out of your head. They start talking about, no, 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 keep pressing forward. They share the gospel with you. They pray with you. They remind you of scripture. And now you, all of a sudden, you're anchored up to go back into war, right? Like community was actually, it says, don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. But step forward, keep moving, and it's community that holds around you. But, but there's one more verse, and we'll be done today. Look at what he says in 29. He says, for it's been granted to you for the sake of Christ. Notice the language here, granted. This is a term of gifting. It's been gifted to you for the sake of Jesus that you should not only believe in him, stop there, 
Your faith is a gift. You're a believer in here today. Your faith is a gift. You didn't muster it up. You didn't create it. It wasn't your idea. You didn't spend so much time seeking God. He sought you. Your faith is a gift. The kingdom of God is a gift. He chose you. He wants you. He's not ashamed of you. He's not bored with you. He doesn't get tired of you. It's a gift, right? Your faith is a gift. Now, look at what he keeps saying. For it's been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. None of us signed up for the second half of that verse, did we? <laughs> Dang, pastor, why'd you read the second half of that verse? It's been gifted to you to believe. Hallelujah, amen. It's been gifted to you to suffer. Okay, let's step back for a second. What's going on here? been gifted to you to suffer. So here's what I know is going on in the room. There's two groups of people every single week we gather. There's those of you who are suffering. You're in the midst of suffering through illness, marriage crisis, infertility, miscarriage, mental illness. You're suffering. If that's you today, like I want you to know I've prayed for you. I knew this passage was coming. I've prayed for you. And God sees you and he knows you right where you are. That's one group in the room. The other group in the room, you're not suffering now, but suffering's coming for you. That's just life, right? So, so a different way to preach this is like, no, Jesus throws you exempt from life's pain. Just believe on him and you're exempt. The problem is our life experience shows that that's foolish and folly. You're not exempt. Jesus never promises you to be exempt. And this is why I love Jesus. This is one of the reasons I love Jesus so much. So at least he shoots us straight, right? So John 16, one of my favorite verses from Jesus, John 16, verse 33, he looks us straight in the eye and he says, in this life, you will have troubles. He's just honest with you. In this life, you will have troubles, comma, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Right, so, so, here, so here's what's going on with that. Jesus says, hey, like cancer might come. Like, like suffering and anxiety and depression and fear and all kinds of, it, it might come. In, in fact, it will come. I don't know what's coming for you. We've all walked through suffering and we're probably not done. But Jesus says, I'm not leaving you to it and this world will not get the final word on those who look to me. And so, so I don't know what's coming for you. But one of my, one of my most important and difficult jobs as a pastor, our elders talk about this all the time, our job is to prepare you to suffer well, right? So how do you do that? One short answer, not in isolation. Not in isolation. So, so in our church, there are stories of miscarriage and infertility, stories of young, we're, we're a young church and we tend to think we're exempt that we're invincible from stuff like this. You're not. Young couples struggling with infertility, miscarriage, the death of young babies. Like they come to us with these stories and at the end of it, it's like, man, it's painful. It's rocky. I'm unsure. I'm crying. But my community has been crazy to me. Foster parents, our stories of community groups rallying around them, supporting the flourishing of life, not leaving the orphans alone or destitute in our city, supporting the flourishing of life, and then community groups gathering around so foster parents can take a, a night out or foster dad can have community or stories go on forever. I know right now I am not preaching this sermon 
with my struggles with anxiety and depression, I am not preaching this sermon if it's not for Charlie and Justin and Josh and some of our other elders who walk alongside of me, cheer me on, confront me, call me out in my sin, ask me to repent. I'm not preaching this sermon without my community. And so here's what I want to say to that. Like, if you're not in community, like, I don't know how you're doing it. Like, this isn't like, again, we're not a programmed church. Like, this isn't a, a sexy program I'm throwing at you. It's, it's actually messy and it's difficult and it's hard, but it's the biblical way. Like, Jesus says, gather together and then go do mission together. It's why some of you clamor for more programs in our church. We don't want to do them because we just think this is better right? Like we're frontline. We serve coffee black. We give you Sundays and groups. Go do it. But here's, here's what I know, man. Here's where I want to land today. Here's what our city needs. I love this city like crazy. I love this church like crazy. And what we don't need is more rail cars because the construction's terrible. And what we don't need is more dog parks because we need more parking. And what we don't need is more restaurants, although they're great. And we don't need more concert venues, although they're really cool. Here's what our city needs. We need communities of believers scattered across the city, meeting between Sundays, learning how to share life and faith and mission together. We need communities of believers scattered across the city who are learning to suffer well as a, as a beacon of light to their neighborhoods. Yes, Jesus is good when the sun is shining down on me. And yes, he is still good when my cancer report comes back and it's all the more aggressive. He is still good and he will not lead me to this. We need communities of believers scattered all throughout our city who, who fight to have conversations about what does it look like to have this, this home in this neighborhood as a hospitable place that's welcoming and bring your neighbors in and just sharing the life of the kingdom. And when the gospel comes up, we will announce Jesus as Lord and we'll ask them to come and play with us. We need communities of believers scattered all across the city who are striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, who are living as good citizens of the kingdom of God. And the first order of business is to do it together. That's what our city needs. And, and here's, here's what I know. You want this. Like, I'm not saying anything today that you don't already want. It's messy, it's hard, and if you have objections to this, please talk with us and don't bail. But it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. We're a really connected church. There's over 700 people in our congregation downtown in community groups. We're a congregation of 1,400. 700 people, man, we're 50% connected. Churches would bleed for that. What that tells me is there's 700 people not connected. We, we want to play together. We want you to play with us between Sundays.